If you will grab your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 20. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, it will be on the screen. Um, if you don't want to look at the screen, that's fine. In your worship folder is a piece of paper with the notes, with a place to write notes down, and then also the scripture on the back of that as well. So um, we'll, when we get there, I would love you to follow along with me. Today is Easter. We are celebrating the culmination of Holy Week. It is that week in the life of the what is now the life of the church where we go from Jesus' triumphant entry to the resurrection that we celebrate today. So last week, we celebrate, or we, we talked about how Jesus came into Jerusalem. This is the week of Passover in the, in the Jewish tradition. Um, he enters into the city, right? The crowds are rallying around him because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. They are hailing him as king. They're hailing him as the Messiah. Their hope is that he will liberate them from the Roman oppression. And that is not what the plan was, which is what we talked about last week, the misunderstanding of the triumphal entry. All right? So that happened last Sunday. He comes in. They're in Jerusalem now for the week. Uh, they're getting ready for Passover. Jesus has several different interactions with um, Pharisees, with his disciples, and you can read those in the Gospels. Um, we're not going to be focusing on those at all today. Um, and then we get to what we celebrated on Thursday, which is the Last Supper. Right? We call it, we celebrate it with Monday Thursday. And it is that, it is when the Jewish um, culture does Passover. They are, um, it's when they do what is called a Seder meal. All right? And in that meal, Jesus begins to explain to the people how and what some of the symbols they've been celebrating for thousands of years represent him. So if you've not been part of a Seder meal before, um, one of the elements that is in a Seder meal is they have an envelope, or not an envelope, but it's a pouch, a cloth pouch, all, in, all together, but it has three segments now, I'm not sure exactly what the Jews consider that to be, if it's just um, we in the church understand that as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, since the Exodus, the Jews have been celebrating this. You understand that? It's a long time they've been doing this, and they still do it today. They just celebrated it on Thursday. Okay, From the beginning, they have always taken out, so in these slots are pieces of matzah bread or unleavened bread. So it's flat bread. They always take out the center piece. They pull it out of the what we understand to be the trinity of God, the Father. They pull out the Son. Not They don't call it the Son. They pull that piece out. They always and have always broken that piece of bread. Then... The kids go into the other room, and the, the patriarch, the father, or the grandfather, whoever's running the, the Seder meal, that, that person always then goes and hides that bread somewhere. And later in the meal, the kids get to, as a game, go and find that bread, and whoever finds it and brings it back, they win a prize. Okay? So, since the beginning of time, not beginning of time, that's not correct, since the beginning of the, of the Passover tradition, which is right after the Exodus, they have always pulled out the sun, they have always broken him, they have always hidden him away for a time. 
to later be revealed and for a reward to be given. There is a complete unknowingness to the significance and foreshadowing of what that means in the Jewish culture. Jesus, on the Last Supper, when they pull out that middle piece, he takes that bread and he says, listen, guys, this bread, this represents my body, me, the son, and he breaks it, right? And we're going to be taking communion at the end of this service, and we're going to, I'll go into a little bit more detail of, of that breaking, okay? He then hides that bread, just like after he gets crucified, he gets hidden for a short period of time. You see the foreshadowing here? For thousands of years has been foreshadowing to this exact moment that Jesus and the disciples are living. They then find that bread and a prize is given. When we find that bread, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and we claim him as our own, we receive the prize like every other kid, but our prize is different because it's eternal life. All right, happy Easter. I hope you had a great morning. We're glad you're here. See why Monday, Thursday services are awesome? I mean, that's the gospel right there. Okay, so that's Thursday night. We haven't even gone to Easter yet. Friday, less than a day later, Jesus is arrested. He is beaten. His body is broken. He is then put on a cross and crucified. And in that moment, every amount of sin in the world, from the very beginning of time to the very end of the future, all of it, all evil comes upon him. And when he sheds his blood, it pays the price for that. And it breaks the system. And it allows us, when we have faith in Christ, to have freedom from that sin. Right? Okay, so, that all happens on Friday. Friday, at the end of the day, is when Jesus is taken from the cross. It's very close to sunrise, uh, sunset, which at the beginning, uh, on Friday at the sunset, is the beginning of the Sabbath for the Jewish people. And they don't do any work. So, the, the disciples take Jesus and they quickly wrap him up. They quickly put him into the tomb on Friday. It gets sealed. The, the rock gets put in front of it. Pilate actually seals it with his crest, which signifies that no one is allowed to open this tomb because the Jewish leadership was afraid the disciples would go and secretly get into the tomb, take Jesus out, and claim he rose from the dead or claim that he had risen and was gone somewhere else to sort of perpetuate this, what they called a cult, longer. So Pilate puts his seal on the thing and he puts some Roman guards there which they would never let anybody in because if they did, they would get, they would get killed for derelict of duty. Okay? That's all Friday night, all day Saturday, these Roman guards are there. And then on Sunday, in the morning, you want to read it, it's in one of the other Gospels, like basically thunder happens and the, the guards are stunned and like left unconscious and the tomb gets, the, the tomb gets opened because the resurrected Lord has come out. Okay, that's not the one we're reading today. So if you'll turn into John chapter 20, we're going to read the first 18 verses, and we're going to look at what happens with the empty tomb. Okay, 
So John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one who, and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, You have taken the Lord out, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen uh, lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linens. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not fully understand. Uh, they did not understand from the scriptures. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They, uh, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize, or she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. He looked towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and, my, and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said. Uh, told him, um, told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. All right. Sunday morning, early on the first day of the week, it says. Right now, these words are really important. John is trying to paint a picture here. And it's hard to understand this in the English because um, the Greek language just is a little bit fuller and he could use very similar to exact words that other passages would use and there would be a tie. So there is these words should strike most Jews familiar because this imagery of the first day of the week harkens all the way back to Genesis when God created the world, right? On the first day of the week, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Okay, John wants us to start to make the, t the connection to the Genesis story. And I'll, there's going to be a few, more story, a few more connections there that you'll see as we go along. All right, so just start to make note of them. So Mary comes to the tomb. Now, 
Mary didn't go alone. Um, other gospel writers talk about how there were three women, and John is only focusing on Mary. Okay, But you'll see that she uses the plural term when she says, we don't know, or um, we, uh, she, she indicates that there was more than them, than more than just her. But she goes to the, temp, uh, to the tomb, and their purpose this Sunday morning was to go and to redress Jesus in the proper way that they should have for burial. They want to put spices on him. They want to anoint him with oils. They're going to rewrap him. They're going to properly prepare him for, uh, for, to be in the tomb. When they arrive, the tomb's open. They're afraid. They look in. They see that the body is gone. It says that Mary then rushes back to Peter. She finds Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That is a term John uses to speak about himself, the one that Jesus, the one that Jesus loved. Okay, so he he's not using his own name, but that's who he's referring to. So she goes and she finds Peter and John, and tells them what they found. Okay, so it's an interesting note, but in this moment, Mary Magdalene has become the very first apostle in the scriptures, because an apostle is somebody who goes and tells the good news of, of the resurrected Lord. She doesn't understand it, that that's what she's doing, but she is. She is the apostle to the apostles who will later go out, the apostles that we are very familiar with, Peter, John, all of those guys. She's the one who is the apostle to them. She is the bringer of good news. That is a huge, huge honor to be the first apostle, right? So she goes, she tells them, and they take off. Says, and, and specifically, John notes that they ran there, right? And they go, and whether they left at slightly separate times, and Peter maybe had a head start, but John wants you to understand that he beat Peter. He beat him. He says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John has done this a couple times in his writing where he's sort of outshone or out, not smarted, but he was the first. He notes that he was the first to do it. And it isn't because John is a competitive guy and needs like the accolades of being an Olympian runner or something. It, what he's doing is he is bolstering that he is one of the original eyewitnesses. That what you're reading in his gospel is not the after-telling of somebody else who was there. It wasn't that Peter got there, saw everything, came back and told John, and John just didn't see it. He wants the reader of his gospel to know, I was there, and actually, I was the first one there. Okay? It's important. So he looks in. He doesn't go in. He stops. And he stoops because the caves are not these big caves. It's probably a small little cave you have to duck to get into. And it is a cave. So it's a cave with a, like a shelf inside of it. Okay, He stoops down to look inside. He sees that the bed linen, or the bed linen, that's not the right word. He sees that the strips and the linens of the grave clothes are still there. This is a clue for two things. First off, this is a clue that most likely this was not a grave robbery, which were very common in that day. Because when somebody was buried, there is a very large amount of spices that gets put onto them, like a lot of money's worth. And so a lot of people would rob graves to get all the spices so they could then sell them 
and make money. Plus, they wanted whatever potential treasures might be inside of the tomb. But the fact that the linen was still there indicates that no robber is going to take the time to, like, you know, unwrap the body and then take a dead corpse with them. Right? The other thing is, is that John wants you, us to understand that this is a different resurrection than what Lazarus went through a week ago. Because in the Lazarus story, Lazarus doesn't come out without his, his grave clothes on. When Jesus tells Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus kind of hobbles out in his, and he's wrapped in, in linen. This is a signal that the resurrection of Jesus is a, is a resurrection beyond what Lazarus had. Lazarus was just like a re-incessitation. Re re anyway, he came back to life in his old body. He's still there. Like, Lazarus is going to die again at some point. He's not different than what he was before. Okay? Jesus left his grave clothes because he is no longer the same. He is the resurrected Lord. He has conquered death. Death no longer clings to him the way it clings to Lazarus. Okay? Important, significant things that John wants our readers to understand. And we're the readers. He wants us to understand this. Okay? So, John stops, he stoops, he looks in. Peter, he catches up, and Peter, being Peter, who likes to just rush into things most times in his life, does the exact same thing here. He just runs right into the tomb. He, he doesn't stop to look, to investigate, to make sure he doesn't, you know, mess up the CSI evidence situation. He just barrels into the tomb, and he looks around. And John elaborates some more. He sees that the linens are still there, but that also the head covering is exactly where it was when Jesus was laying down. So what they would do is they would wrap the head in a special way, and then they would wrap the bodies in strips. Okay, so the strips are on the on the thing. It doesn't sound like they were like neatly folded or anything. They might have been. It depends on how clean Jesus was when he got up. But the head covering, like it's as if it just fell off his head and is exactly where it was when he was laying there. So Peter comes in and he sees all of this. He's taking it in. And then John says, and then the other disciple comes in, and he comes in and he sees and he believes. We've talked for the last couple of weeks about how significant this transition is for, um, for in John's writings. That there is a seeing and then there is a believing. Okay. Now, something I think is very interesting and we should highlight here is that there has been three incidences of looking, seeing, or saw right in a row. John, then Peter, and then John again. We translate them all roughly the same words in English. They are all unique words in Greek that mean uniquely different things. So when John runs up to the tomb and he stops and he looks in, it is like the most generic version of seeing, meaning he's just sort of assessing the situation. He's just looking. When Peter runs in, he runs in, he comes in, and it's a, a form of the word seeing that means he sees it, 
And he's taking it in and he's starting to analyze it and he's trying to connect dots. It's a mental, a mental scene. Okay? When John comes into the tomb, the word that they use there, and the best that we could do is we translate it to mean saw and believe. That's all one word in Greek. And what it basically means is he sees, and everything he sees, he takes to heart and it and it becomes fast in who he is. He, it's, a, it's a transformational word. Now, he does not fully understand what he believes yet. And it says that in the scriptures. It says that it's not until later, once they make the connections with the scriptures, that what is happening and why it's happening, he just knows that something miraculous has happened with Jesus, that he is no longer dead, and he's not really sure all of what that means yet. But he believes it. He is the first to believe. And he wants us to understand that. They go back to the disciples. I'm sure they tell their story, and I'm sure that the guys don't fully believe them. They might, but I think there's a lot of confusion. Oh, excuse me. A lot of confusion. Mary Magdalene stays behind. She has not gone into the tomb. She's outside of the tomb, and she is crying. The, the word here is really like a, a weeping. Um, it, it's very much the same kind of word that was used with Mary um, and Martha with the weeping over their brother's death in Lazarus. Okay, do you see the connection? There's a lot of parallels here to Lazarus's death a week earlier. Mary, Mary Magdalene is weeping the way these sisters weeped over their brother dying. It's this inconsolable mourning. Finally, she looks into the empty tomb and what she sees is two angels standing there in white. Okay? They're standing, or they're sitting, actually, where um, Jesus was laid to rest. And John makes... John's interesting because he's very specific about where they were sitting. It's not just that Mary sees these angels and they have a conversation with her. He says they're at both ends of where Jesus laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And a lot of commentators say that there's no significance to that. But a few that I really like, and I tend to agree with here, they say that it is really significant. So, this harkens again back to the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, the Ark of the Covenant is this really big box that's beautifully made. It's inlaid with gold, and it's where the Jews will put their... Um, the Ten Commandments, the tablets the Ten Commandments are on, and several different other very sacred things inside of that. Okay? It was, it was, you weren't allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was so sacred. It was the, um, it, it's the seat of God. And if you touched it, you died. And there's a story in the Old Testament of that happening. It's slipping, they're slipping, and it's going to fall off of a cart, and one of the priests, out of all good intentions touches it to keep it from falling out of the cart, and he dies, like on the spot. So they, you know, nobody touched the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the reason you don't touch it. Because on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there are two golden angels, one on each side of the Ark. And they have their wings in, so like their wings go like this towards each other. And what that creates, it creates what is called the mercy seat. It is literally the throne of God on earth, is the belief the Jews had. Every time the Ark of the Covenant was in the, in the tabernacle or in the, um, in the temple, their, their belief is that God literally was sitting there. 
And, I mean, the scriptures attest to that being what happened. God would sit there, and they called it the mercy seat. Because what happened is, every year, the priests would atone for the sins of the people. They would do the sacrifices that were supposed to be done. They would take the blood of those sacrifices, and they would sprinkle it all around, and they would always sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies where God resided on the ark. And they would sprinkle the ark with a little bit of blood, and it signified God needing to give atonement or forgiveness for the sins of the people. And he always did. So, John tells us there are two angels seated on one end, each end of where Jesus laid. And some commentators suggest that maybe this represented how these were the two angels from the Ark of the Covenant who now sat on what was the new mercy seat of God, where all grace and forgiveness flows out of the resurrection. Love it. I love it. So that's why I follow. I believe that now. Uh, I read that and I was like, man, that is good stuff. Okay. So here they are. They ask her, why is she crying? She still believes that there's been a robbery. And she tells them, uh, I don't know where the, they put my Lord. And then she turns and there's a man beside her. And, and the Bible tells us it's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And she believes he's the gardener of this little garden that is around the tomb. And he asks her why she's crying. And what is it that she's looking for? What is she looking for? And he and she responds, thinking he's the gardener, thinking maybe he's the one who moved the body. If you've moved the body, please tell me where it's at and I will go and get him. And he responds by saying one word. He doesn't respond by saying, hey, Mary, it's Jesus. I'm resurrected. I'm back. He, he just says Mary. He says her name. And in that moment, that second of hearing her name off of the voice of her, of her master, her world flips 180. She goes from despair and hopelessness. She goes from a place of complete mourning and wrecked emotions to complete elation and praise and adoration for the fact that her, her master is alive in front of her. She screams out Rabboni, which means teacher, like she's just ecstatic he's there, and she grabs a hold of him. And Jesus tells her, don't hold on to me. Uh, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Um, go instead to my brothers, tell them that I must ascend to the Father and to their Father, to my God and to your God. It's not that Mary wasn't allowed to touch Jesus, because she obviously could touch him. It was this idea of holding on to what he was before. Because Mary wanted him back. She wanted him back as he was. The teacher. Their, their guide. He wanted, she wanted the, the old times back. The, the normal to be brought back into place. And he's telling her, don't hold on to that. Because that's not what's happening. He's saying, you can't hold on to me because I have to go to my father and something new is happening. John has referenced Genesis three times now. He's talked about the, the timing of creation. He's talked about a garden and then he talks about this gardener. And he's saying how with the resurrection of Christ, there is a new creation happening. 
The Bible talks about that, how God is recreating the earth through Christ. He's recreating us back into what He wanted us to be originally. We don't have to be bound up by sin anymore. We could be what He meant for us to be again. And she didn't understand that. She didn't understand that He... She thought He was a gardener. And He wasn't the gardener of that little garden. But He is the true gardener. He's the true gardener of all creation. Of this new creation. He was the true gardener of the original creation. But He he is the true gardener of this new creation that God is, is bringing about into the world around Him. He is the one who will tend to it and care, with, care for it with love and mercy and grace. He's the one who got His hands dirty in it and made it possible. The true gardener was right in front of her. And He said, listen, this is a new thing. You can't hold on to Me. But I need you to go and to tell My brothers... First time Jesus has ever referred to the disciples as brothers. He has taken them from being his students, his apprentices, and he's now said, they're part of my family. They're my brothers in, in, in me. I mean, this includes all of, I mean, he refers to Mary by saying, I'm going to my father and I'm going to your father. To their father. I'm going to my God and to your God, to all of your God. I, we're go, I'm going, but I'm going to come back. That's the insinuation. He doesn't say that, but that's the insinuation. He says, go and tell them. And she does. She runs off and she tells them that she has seen him. And she relays everything that he has told her. Right? And that ends where we talk about today. What we don't see, because it's next week, or well, it's the next part of the Scriptures, and I encourage you to read it, but Jesus then appears to the disciples later. They go to the upper room where they had the Last Supper. They've locked themselves in because they're still afraid of the, of the leadership, the, the church leadership, uh, the temple leadership. And, and in this locked room, they sat, and Jesus appears to them. He doesn't come through the door, doesn't come through an open window. He's just there. They're terrified. He says, peace, I bring you peace. Do not be afraid. And they see him. And in that moment, their lives are changed. In that moment, the moment they experience the risen Jesus, their life is changed because they believe. Thomas wasn't there. He was out somewhere else when Jesus appeared. And when he comes back, the disciples are ecstatic and they're telling him about how they saw him and all of these different things, just the way Mary was when she told them. And Thomas doesn't believe them. And he goes so far as to say, I won't believe without touching his hands where they put the holes and his side where he got stabbed. Like, I have to physically touch him. He's a tactile guy. He needs proof. And a week later, when they're all together, including Thomas... Jesus appears again. And Jesus, knowing where Thomas was, says, Thomas, come. Touch my hands. Touch my side. And in that moment, Thomas is changed forever. John and Peter saw the tomb. Peter was working it out. He hadn't quite made all the connections yet. John believed from just seeing that. They don't see him until later when he comes to the upper room. They don't see him. Mary, she hears her name 
and the life, and her life has changed. The disciples see him in the upper room and their life has changed. Thomas touches them and their life is changed. And Jesus tells the disciples at that point, he says, listen, blessed are those who will not see, but will believe. Because he knows that in the future, we will not get to feel him. We won't get to touch his wounds. We will not get to see him the way that the disciples get to see them. And if we believe, we are blessed because we believe. But I'm going to propose to you this. I'm going to propose to you that we can see Jesus. We can touch Jesus still. Because every time that we interact with somebody out of the love of Christ, out of the mercy that comes from the Father, any time that we take care of the needs of those who are, are in need, we are being Jesus to them. They get to see Jesus through us. They get to touch Jesus through us. Because that's what a Christian is. A Christian means you are a little Jesus. And I don't mean that in any way as a sacrilegious thing where you are replacing Jesus, but you are an ambassador and an example of who Jesus is to the world around you. So when you go out and when you love people the way that Christ loved us, then they get to see Christ through you. Each disciple needed to experience Christ in their own unique way to believe. We each need to experience Christ in our own unique way. He comes to us each in the way that we need to hear him. For those of us who have faith, think back to when you became saved. Think back to the moments when you felt like you experienced Jesus. I promise you that it is most likely a very unique situation. There is no formula to how you, to, to, to meeting Jesus. And I think that it is dangerous to think that if we do A, and then we do B, and then we do C, and maybe sprinkle a little bit of D in there, we're going to get to where we want to be where everyone gets saved. That is dangerous thinking. It's dangerous to think that if we play the right songs, if we have a powerful prayer, if, if the preacher's just right on point that day, and then we open up the altars, people are going to be saved. That's dangerous. Because Jesus interacts with you in, an, in a unique way that only you can interact with Him. And our job, our mission, our, what we should be driving to be part of is the fact that each and every one of us knows different people in our community. You each have different radiuses of influence in your lives. And the way that you talk to people, the way that you interact with them, the way that you show love is a unique situation with, between you and them. And in that unique situation, they can experience Jesus the way they need to experience Him so that they can come to a place where they might have faith in Him. So you have a mission. We don't get to be bystanders. We have to be active participants in the sharing of the good news that we celebrate today on Easter Sunday. I'm excited about being part of that. I'm excited that I don't just have to twiddle my thumbs until I die and get to go to heaven. For some of us, it might be challenging because not all of us are those like super like outgoing people who love to talk to a bunch of different people. It's okay. God can use you uniquely in your situation with the different situations that you find yourself in. Just be willing to step into it. Be willing to follow His leadership in it. 
we get to be part of this amazing thing that is the church. We become part of the family of God. And we have the awesome responsibility of bringing more family in. Because everybody's family, they just don't know it yet. They don't. We have a very unique way that we as Christians get to experience Jesus. And it's through communion. So if you have your little communion cup, I encourage you to bring it out. If you don't have a little communion cup, raise your hand and Miss Debbie will come around and hand out a communion cup to you. Communion is the moment that we we take these in moments of remembrance of what it is that Christ did for us on the cross. But it's it's so much, Debbie, I think there might be a few out in the foyer who might need it too. It's it's more than just it's more than just a remembrance thing though, and that's important to understand. In our faith, we we have um, a belief that sorry I'm distracted. We have one up here, Debbie too. If I can get one over here, thank you. I'll make sure everyone has one. Okay, we believe that when we partake of this sacrament, that it is a special moment where God, who is always bestowing grace upon us, He just opens the floodgates and just dumps it on you in a special way. It's called a means of grace. It's a way of accepting God's grace in a special, unique way. And for each of us, it's different. The way that you interact with your God is is unique to you. And when you're interacting with Him, He bestows His grace upon you in a unique way. Alright? So, when we take this, I encourage you to remember that. John Wesley, the the um, person who started kind of our faith line, he believed that this was so important, he took communion all the time. Like, And you can take communion anytime you want, wherever you're at. doesn't have to be grape juice. doesn't have to be this little wafer bread thing. You can be at your dinner table, and it could be your mashed potatoes and your Coke. It's the idea that you're remembering and thanking Christ for what he did on the cross for us. Okay, so take out the little piece of bread. That's where we're going to start. This is that bread that Jesus pulled out of that, that little pouch on the Last Supper. And he took it. And he broke it like they had always done. And he said, listen guys, this is my body. This was broken for you so that you could be free. So what I'd love you to do I want you to take your bread and I'd like you to break it in half. Now, when we take this bread, we do it in remembrance of his broken body. We do it in remembrance of his willingness to endure suffering and pain on our behalf. 
Okay, now in this next piece, as you're opening your little cup up, be careful you don't drop it on your clothes because these lids are a little finicky. Okay, so open up your juice. At the end of the meal, there is a final cup in the Passover service. And he took that cup and he held it up to his, his disciples and he said, listen guys, this cup represents my blood, which is a new covenant for you. It represents the shedding of his blood, which will happen on the cross. You see, the old covenant they used to live under was the law, where you had to do the right thing all the time or you were damned. And he's saying, listen, that covenant is no longer going to be valid. The only covenant that will matter will come from my shedding of blood, which will be the signal of my grace, love, and forgiveness for you. So every time you take this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Remember that I love you. Remember what I did for you so that you may have freedom through faith in me. Now, I, that's not exactly what it says in the Scripture, but I wanted you to fully understand the meaning behind what he was saying there. So today we are going to take this cup in remembrance of his death on the cross. And we are going to celebrate that today we celebrate his resurrection, that death did not win, that he is not lying in a tomb somewhere, but is seated at the right hand of the Father, still working in each of our lives. Will you take the cup with me? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your willingness to die on a cross for us. We thank you for the fact that if we ask you into our lives, we ask for your forgiveness, you will forgive us of our sins. You will come and live in our hearts and begin to work and transform us into something and to be the person that you want us to be, the true person that we're meant to be. Father, we thank you on this Easter Sunday that, that you didn't just stay dead, but you rose from the dead and that you have, have accepted us into your family, that you have, have sent us out to go and to love on the world around us so that they could become part of your family. Father, I pray that you will give us the strength to do that, to give, to go forward, to not be afraid, to not think we have to do something special, but can just live our lives, but in a way that is a, as an expression of your love and your grace to the world around us. May we be your open hands. May we be the ones who extend a hug. May we be those who will lift others up around us. Father, I pray that as we go from this place, that this won't just be the Sunday morning service, but this will be the beginning of us stepping into this new mission. It's not a new mission, but maybe it's a new mission for some of us. Help us to step into it. Help us to be what you want us to be. Give us the words to say, guide our feet. 
Father, we want your will in our lives. We want your will in our church. We trust you. We love you. We give you praise. Praise beyond anything we can truly fully express. In your holy name we pray these things. Amen. As you dismiss today, I pray that you will go out, that you will live the love of Christ to the world around you in all of the unique ways that you alone can do it. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You are dismissed.